Hi, I'm Mark Lynch of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. With me today is Kristen Fabi. She's an assistant professor at the Harvard Business School. Kristen, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So a lot of your research has been on Turkey, and uh, you know we've all been following this uh, political crisis, which seems to be unfolding in front of our eyes. Uh, tell us, you know, what do you think about what's happening in Turkey and what it means for Turkish democracy? Yeah, I think this crisis has actually been a long time coming. Um, and for those, I was on many panels, gosh, as early as uh, 2008, 2009, even up to 2010, in which people were lauding Turkey as a model um, that should be emulated in the region, especially post-Arab Spring. And I was always quite skeptical <laughs> of that model because I'm of the opinion that executive power in Turkey has always been over-concentrated. Um, and I saw what I considered to be a very worrying judicialization, I call it the judicialization of Turkish politics, but battles that were being fought out in the judiciary that should have been taking place in a different domain. Um, and I think you saw this with um, some of the big trials, so with the Ergenekon trial, with the KJK trial, with Bailos. Um, and at this point, the coalition behind the AKP regime was large enough and I think the, the anger, the very real anger that still lingers in Turkey over the 1980 coup and some of the military repression was still so strong that people were willing to turn a blind eye um, to basically what was an abuse of judicial power. Why, why was the judiciary uh, aligned with the AKP on this? Well, so the, I mean, there are various theories, and these are theories that are difficult to test. And so one theory suggests that the Gulen movement had managed to infiltrate the judiciary. The Gulen movement at the po that point in time was very closely aligned or relatively closely aligned with the regime. Um, but I actually think it goes down a little bit deeper than that. I mean, and it's very difficult to prove the degree to which any specific group has infiltrated any institution. But I actually think it goes down a little bit deeper. I think you actually have to look at the role of public prosecutors. Um, and I don't know of any work that's doing this currently, but I think it'd be a great <laughs> research right. avenue for somebody who is brave and bold and, and willing to go there. Um, but these public prosecutors are the ones who take the cases to court, and these public prosecutors, very few of them seem to be immune to political pressures. Um, and so I think that fact is what made this battle play out in the judiciary. And then it's, it's spilled over uh, into a number of other realms, into the, into the media. Um, it was also, I think, deeply linked with the procurement process uh, in contracts and the way that capitalism uh, began to work in Turkey mostly after 2007, but there were various changes in the laws with the procurement process that allowed the AKP um, to really hand out contracts to insiders in a way that hadn't occurred previously. Um, and that, you know, facilitated, I think, a consolidation of power, but in a really gradual way and in a way that it was difficult for outsiders mm -hmm. to detect because the rhetoric... Uh, especially as long as the Gulen movement was aligned with the regime, the rhetoric was very much a rhetoric of openness and democracy. Well, so many people I've heard, uh, they, they link this uh, centralization of power to Erdogan's decision to seek the presidency and yeah. then to change the constitution, uh, to make it a presidential system. But it sounds like you're saying that, that this 
concentration of power precedes that decision. Well, I think that you know that decision has also been a decision that's it's been lingering around. The, the new constitu- the idea that there needs to be a new constitution has been um, has been lingering for a very very long time without Erdogan or the AKP. I mean, in, in this point in time, it's really just Erdogan ever being able to follow through because he never really had the parliamentary majority. Um, that that uh, he needed to have to push these these things through. So I actually remember this. You'll you'll remember this is maybe um, when I was a young graduate student. I had done a Palm Epps grant, um, and uh, we, I wrote a brief, and the brief was all about Turkey is going to change its constitution. Mm-hmm. And I was it was so premature, right? Because this was this was like 2009 that I think I wrote this brief, um, and here we are sitting 2015, 2016. And, you know, it still is on the table. And so I think that there are a lot of entrenched interests against him pushing for a presidential system. But you know, the question that I would respond is, it, at this point, doesn't really matter. Um, because the, the way in which he, he's dismissed Davutoglu now, the way in which you've kind of seen... Him, and I, I don't like to reduce the regime just to him right. because there are regime insiders that are very close to him that are equally complicit, but the, the way that he has kind of turned his back on other members of the coalition that helped bring the AKP to power... Um, makes me wonder if he really needs to go that final step. So you think it's basically effectively a presidential system now Already. because he's so thoroughly neutralized so. Yeah. his rivals. So, but there seems to be, you mentioned also these kind of entrenched interests, and uh, certainly there are checks and balances at some level in uh, the Turkish system. So what are they? So, I mean, I think that there are, at this point in time, there are a few sets of checks and balances um, and I think about the political arena when I think about these checks and balances. And then you know, civil society traditionally has been quite weak. And I think that one of the things that we see with Gezi, and you know, this happened elsewhere in the Arab Spring too, but uh, with Gezi especially, you didn't get a political party that necessarily emerged out of Gezi. You, what you did get was you, the HDP, a kind mm-hmm. of resurgence um, of this Kurdish movement, but a broadening um, of the Kurdish movement to include more liberal elements. I think that is really um, a place where you see a bastion of resistance to um, further consolidation of state power on behalf of, of course Erdogan. The, of course, the HDP's uh, electoral success then leads directly into the reignition of the war and... It's, yeah, precisely. And so this, I think there was this key moment, right, between the first election in 2015 and then the second election. And what happened in between those two elections was is very scary for Turkish politics because um, you see these bombings in Ankara and then you see uh, members of the AKP get up and say in public platforms, this happened because there was no government formed. The reason these terrorist attacks are occurring is because we do not now have a government. This did not happen on our watch. This would not have happened on our watch. Um, And so they really used the fact that they had lost control of parliament effectively and there was no government formed, um, combined with regional instability and a really gross act of terrorism, to basically say you're better off under our thumb than you are in an ambiguous situation where maybe the HDP wins some votes, maybe the JHP wins some votes, um, but uh, we can't form a government because we're working this out. So to me, that was a very scary 
period, I think, in Turkish politics. It's interesting. You know, if you go back and look at some of the early sources of Erdogan's power and some of his early initiatives, you have things like, for example, you mentioned his alliance uh, with the Gulen movement, which has now turned into open confrontation and, and the like. And he had his outreach to the Kurdish parties, and and which is now turned into a, a situation of war. And, you know, so if you look at it like that, it might seem like his base of power is progressively shrinking as his alliances disappear, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, it, it seems like his base of power is shrinking as his alliances disappear. The coalition has definitely been narrowed. Um, but the... The interesting thing is is that as the coalition has narrowed, he concentrates power, and when he no longer needs a member of the coalition, that member of the coalition is then turned against. But I think it's important to remember also, especially with the Kurdish issue, is that the AKP government has absolutely no problem dealing with representatives in the KRG, for instance. So mm-hmm. it's not anti-Kurdish. It's very anti-PKK, anti-HDP to the extent that the HDP can challenge parliamentary politics and AKP dominance um, in parliament. I think the one sort of member of the coalition that's oftentimes not talked about and is uh, is uh, somehow always looming in the background now, especially with this refugee crisis, is the issue of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's always been this hope that uh, the AKP was the party that would be favorable towards Europe. And now you see with the dealing on the migration issue um, that the EU needs Turkey, and uh, Turkey doesn't really feel like it needs the EU. Um, And I think that that gives Erdogan and the regime a tremendous amount of power. So even if domestically they've isolated a movement like the Gulen movement, that we don't really know how powerful they ever Mm -hmm. actually were. In media outlets, yes. And here in D.C., yes. Um, You know, in globally, yes, but within Turkey, um, and and the Kurds have always been on the fringe. Um, but I think this question of, of being able to manipulate the EU and EU sentiment, um, that's why you have some, to this day, very diehard, they call themselves liberals, but that still stick with the AKP and embrace conspiratorial narratives um, Mm -hmm. that everybody's out to get Turkey um, and that the AKP is actually, we should stand behind them because uh, taking down the AKP is, uh, you know, tantamount to uh, meddling in Turkish domestic politics. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Because a part of Erdogan's original base was this merchant class, and uh, you would think that they would have a strong interest in seeing that EU relationship develop. Why, why don't they mobilize in support of that? Is it this conspiratorial narrative or frustration? Oh, I, no, I think I think that they're, they, they are very much in favor. I mean, if you look at trade, trade with the EU is essential to the Turkish economy. And if you look at... Um, you know, development in Turkey, and there have been, the, the economy's on shaky, is in a, in a bit of a shaky position, right? There's, there's been problems with the currency, um, you've got most of the money that's flown in is, uh, has not been, you know, FDI, so, mm-hmm. you know, deep FDI money, it's portfolio uh, inflows, and, they, and the, they've spent a lot, um, and that money could evaporate overnight. Um, and a lot of that trade is with Europe, and so I think they're, they, they are bound. And I do really like this uh, Ajimolu, and uh, uh, I can't remember the co-author on this piece, uh, article, but that, you know, Turkish democracy does better when Turkey is engaged with Europe. Um, and when those chapters are closed and when Turkey is disengaged, Turkish democracy does worse. 
Uh, I think there's really something to that argument. Now, the question is, is we have engagement with Europe at this point in time, but is this the kind of engagement that you want <laughs> Turkey to have with Europe, engagement over the refugee issue and the migration issue? Um, I think that Europe is in such a precarious position itself in terms of the erosion of the welfare state um, and its own inability mm -hmm. to deal with the rise of xenophobia um, and handle an influx of migrants and refugees, um, that this might not be the most uh, constructive way for um, mm -hmm. a rekindling of the relationship between Europe and Turkey, which I think is desperately needed. Now, Erdogan's uh, Syria policy has been pretty unpopular, right? So, so why does he sustain it? Or is there uh, any possibility that this turns into a genuine, you know, politically mobilizing issue? Um, I think it, my, from what I've understood, from what Turkish citizens want, they want they don't want to have anything to do with this. I'm, and and I, the people that I speak with, and um, you know, it ranges from people in Istanbul, people in Ankara, to people in the southeast, in places like Gaziantep, um, they don't want to be involved. Um, they don't want to be involved. And so I think that if when you say that his uh, Syria policy has been unpopular, do you mean the idea of the open border and uh, basically funding groups that are that that maybe shouldn't be funded and or? the commitment to the overthrow of uh, uh, the of commitment Bashar. to the over yeah and his and the no fly zone and the, and no the fly safe zone. area and yeah the, and and just how steadfast he's been um, on that point I you know I think that the the average Turkish citizen is they're concerned about Syria only to the extent that there might be spillover effects. Um, I don't think that they're concerned to the extent that, you know, they care about what a future Syria looks like. I don't think that they, that, that the average Turkish citizen has in mind some ideal future for Syria that is better or worse for Syria itself. Yeah. Um, and so that they're, so for that reason, they're, they're a bit disengaged. But what they don't like about the Erdogan policy is that they think that it's drawn Turkey into the fray in a way that's been destabilizing overall. So one last question, you know, if you look at Turkey right now and where it is, do you see it as kind of on this inevitable road towards autocracy, or do you think that it's hitting some kind of inflection point where there'll be a pushback against this centralization of power? I, I see Turkish politics very circularly, um, and I think that we are coming back around in into a circular fashion in a way that, uh, you know, Erdogan in, in many ways is the moderate Islamic version of Ataturk. And this, these are patterns in Turkish politics that have played themselves out over and over and over again. And there's been a certain resilience uh, in Turkish democracy, and I think part of it has to do with state strength. So the Turkish state is actually quite strong. Um, unlike other states in the region, I think the Turkish state is quite strong. Um, I worry this time around, not because um, the AKP is Islamist, but because the opposition is so weak, um, and especially in terms of the JHP, so out of touch um, with the young generation. So I call them the Generation AKP, but these are people who have grown up um, you know, so since 2002 under AKP rule, um, and I think that, that, that the opposition parties are just quite simply really out of touch, 
and that that's probably what worries me the most, um, thinking about things going forward. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Kristen Fabi of Harvard Business School. Uh, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me.